I was going to be famous. I was going to be the next voice. I was going to be the next Donny Osmond. And the only thing I needed to do was not be gay. So I'd be at all these voice lessons with all these famous people and trying to audition for all this stuff like American Idol and get record deals. And every time I'd go in, I messed up. I would go in and I'd, and I, and I'd like crack on a song. I would pretend I wasn't prepared when I was because I knew deep, deep down I couldn't, I wasn't being authentic to my true self. What do you do when your entire life is leading you down one path and you suddenly feel the need to change? My guest today describes his dreams failing as the moment he finally found himself. Jeff McLean has done it all in the entertainment business. He's performed on Broadway, toured nationally, recorded albums, and through it all, never felt complete. After years of chasing his dreams from Los Angeles to New York and back again, he finally found himself in the most unlikely place with his parents in a small mountain town in Utah. Today, he's sharing his journey and a lesson we can all take to heart. It's never too late to go back home. Welcome to Heart of the Home, a podcast exploring the personal histories that inspire our surroundings, candid conversations about the stories behind the pretty pictures, tales of design and renovations gone wrong and right, because a home isn't just a structure filled with things, it's the people who live there. So join me as we explore the unique stories that help each of us find our way home. Okay, so hi. Hi. Oh, it's so good to see you. It's so nice to have you here in person. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. It, during all of this coronavirus time, a little COVID action, being together is exciting. I it forgot is. how much I missed people. I know, and I missed you particularly. We had plans to go out right and when the world date. shut down. We did. And it was like we we had made plans to go out like... Lots of times before, but we were like resolved. It was actually going to yeah, happen. Yeah, we were like, we're doing it. We're making this happen. And then the world stopped. And then the world stopped. <sighs> How's then, the world been stopping for you? Good? Are um, you, mm. I think we're coming out, we're coming out better, right? Yeah. Right? But it was rough for a while. I'm surprised by all of the things that I actually needed to learn. <laughs> you you're didn't like, know. Wow, I didn't realize that sitting with myself... On in a lot of different areas of my life was the ability to leave, the ability to kind of do micro runaways mm -hmm. where you're like, didn't do a huge life change, but oh, I'm just going to go to that event as opposed to staying home and like organizing my closet or like figuring out how to put all my files away. Dealing with all the things that you didn't really want to deal with or weren't a big priority. And pretended you didn't have time for. Oh, yeah. There was like, oh, I don't have time to do that project. And so all of the projects that I've been doing have been like soul stuff that I've needed to do for a long time. And it's been really a huge blessing. Um, but also, I think whenever we're forced to change, because <laughs> America, let's be real, like nobody wants to change. Like we're like, there's these opposing sides that are very aggressively mirroring each other. And it's forcing a level of change. And change always comes hard. 
I, yes. I, I just believe that no one wakes up and goes, mm, I want to do life-altering change today. <laughs> like, we only do it when there's an aggressive, we can't keep going. Yes. Yeah. And you talking about how you had suddenly had time to do things that you didn't have time for before, spoken like somebody who wasn't at home in lockdowns with three small children. Because oh, yeah. I never had less time in my whole life than ah, I did during lockdowns. Ever. Ever. It was intense, man. I mean, because your kids leaving for a portion of the day is the point. Yeah, no, they're they were always with me. <laughs> they were <sighs> always there, and they're that age of mom, 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 mom. Oh yeah, look at me do this. I actually joke with my boyfriend. Where I'm like, Joe, 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 look at me. <laughs> no, Joe, Joe, watch me, and I'll do a full thing where I just have to force him to stop doing what he's doing, and I'll like be doing jumping jacks or something. But look, uh, oh we'll, yeah, we'll joke about that. No, that's my kids. Like, mom, mom, watch. Watch. And I'll like stare. Okay, keep watch. Keep, keep watch. watching. Okay, I'm, I'm watching. Okay, I, I, no, mom, watch. Watch. It's like, but they're so cute. Yes. Uh, by the way, I follow all of the things you do. Aww. And you're so, and also like this podcast voice you have. I love your voice. I love the way that you talk. I love the way that you look at the camera and tell me about like your decorative needs with your hot husband. Well, thank you. Your garden outside? I watched the whole thing. I was obsessed. Where you built that? We're like, it must be black. Oh, by the way, I'm a huge fan of painting everything black. Well, like, thank you. Oh, I'm a huge fan. And like, it's so chic because we're doing a little bit of that in Heber, like the farm country. We'll get into it. But yes. like, your um, garden, the deer can't eat it. Yes. Everything in Heber is about not letting the deer eat it. Yes. You can't grow anything without it being Auschwitz caged. <laughs> Can I say Auschwitz? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> too soon. I mean, not too soon. Not too no. soon, but just like I mean, morbidly but inappropriate. But ever say ever it? Say it. Yeah, don't ever say that. <laughs> but so I, okay, I, I built a chicken coop and I called it the... Um, Von Chirp Manor. The Von Chirp Manor, but it's also Alcatraz. Can we say Alcatraz? You can say we Alcatraz. Can, okay, yeah. Okay, PC. Yes, because you don't want wildlife getting in there and eating yeah, your no you don't your chicks but i'm also the guy that just whenever i'm in provo feels like i have to say the f word just because i feel like everyone there should hear it like i don't know it's a provo thing i feel when i'm at byu i'm not sure how we transitioned from um alcatraz to the f word in provo no i feel like i say the inappropriate thing <laughs> That's what that means. I'm really like... Thanks for I bridging like, yeah. the gap. No, there. what I do is I like to be a little bit shocking and then just hold you later. You know? I'm watching the other people in the room. We're really like, we have quietly to, laughing. We have to edit this whole event. Okay. okay we have so much to talk about. I, know, I want I have to little back time. up. Okay. I want to back up. You're, you have little time because you have a, a, tat I have a tattoo appointment. appointment. Later, which is, this is three years in the making, which we'll actually, we'll talk about. Okay, okay, we'll get there. Oh my God. Okay, let's back up to where you grew up. You grew uh, up here in Utah. This is actually like beyond beautiful story. So my dad is Michael McLean. Yeah. And so he's a big music Mormon guy. He's I a big deal him, in yeah, Utah, The Mormon especially. Billy Joel. Yes. And so when I was a kid, we were living in the avenues, like... um on Browning Avenue. Okay. And um, I was born there. And it was the inversion in the 80s in Utah at the time was like, in Salt Lake, it's, it's bad. So my dad, as an artist, was like living in the inversion and his best friend, his friend, Uncle Keith, I call him Uncle mm -hmm. Keith, but Keith called on the phone. Keith was like super successful, like on the floor of the stock exchange when he was like 21. They've been best friends since high school. And he called and said, Michael, what's wrong? You're like super depressed. 
And he's like, I just, this inversion's really getting to me. So Uncle Keith and Aunt Suzanne jump on a plane. They're like, we're coming. You sound miserable. So they jump on a plane to be like, you're unhappy. We're coming to help. Like, what's up? Like, this is what Uncle Keith. And it's, oh, they're the best. Yeah. So he's like, this inversion is killing me. And dad, and he's like, well, where do you want to be? Uncle Keith says, where do you want to go? He's like, there's this valley on the other side of the mountain called Heber City. And I just love it there. And they jumped in their car and they drove over the mountain. They looked at properties together and they found this one property in this place called Daniel, Utah, which is right next to Heber. Mm -hmm. And it was this 22 acre plot. And they both felt the spirit. And on the spot, Uncle Keith wrote a check and said, here's the land. You're going to live here. And he had, and he's like, pay me back when you can. Not that big of a deal. Uncle Keith had the dough, wrote the check. In order for you to create the things that you need to create as an artist, you have to live somewhere where you're happy. Wow. I know. And so there's this 22-acre land that's gorgeous. Yes. And at the time, it was only $4,000 an acre. What? I know. 1983 or four. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was insane. And at the time... um, there was no one, no big homes in Heber. Yeah. And so we got the land and then we split it in half. So they took 11 acres and we have 11 acres. And then dad pays him back for the land, whatever. And it's like this, we were going to build a home. So my mom wanted to live in this like consecrated home where multi-generations come together. So my grandparents, my dad's parents were living in New Jersey and um, they were like, we should all build a house together. In, in the same house the same house so my grandpa mclean built the house as an architect and as a designer he built the whole space wow and it took them three years to build and my grandpa super artistic there's this like radiant heating floor situation where he has the like the pipes that heat the home um go through like this solar situation so in the 80s my grandpa developed this whole entire like heating system to do on a solar level and when no one was. So it's amazing. Yeah, it took three years to build and the whole house is like five different master bedrooms and um, beams that open up the whole space. But my grandpa was so meticulous that he, we have this thing called the great room. Mm -hmm. And when I was a kid, he's like, what's great about this room? The great room. He was also a weird educator where he felt really comfortable being very like, let me teach you. Yeah. Like it was very important for him to teach us stuff, which when you're 11, you're like, give me a break. But still, he's like, what's great about this room? And he'd let you guess for like hours. Like it wasn't like he'd let you off and say, let me tell you. <laughs> um, so we'd be guessing and we'd be guessing what's great about this room. He says this, you can put up the Christmas tree without moving any furniture. Ooh, like that's there's a, a Christmas tree that. spot. Like he thought about all of that. I appreciate that for yeah, sure. It's super cool. So when I was a kid, we moved in, we moved to Heber and moved behind the bowling alley mm-hmm. when I was like five, four or five years old. And then we moved into the house three years later. Into And it was the biggest house in Heber. Wow. And it was very, it was like, it's like this 10,000 square foot log mansion extravaganza that um and then uncle keith built one next door so and his has like three forms of wood around all of the 
His his is like architectural digest gorgeous beyond. Wow. Yeah. So ours we built kind of on a dime mm-hmm. at the time. And what's interesting is I sold my house in Salt Lake, my 1800 square foot house in Salt Lake in 2016 for a hundred thousand more dollars than it than they it cost to build. To build. Isn't that insane? The ten thousand square foot cabin. I mean, the price of homes in Utah is just, wow. It's just going up, up, It's up, insane. Up, 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 and up. I actually sold my house in Salt Lake, which was so cute, um, on Dearborn Street um, at the time when there was a huge boom. I was oh like, and we sold it for more than I thought it was possible to sell. But um, So let's back up back to Heber. Yeah. So you have two siblings. You grew up in this mountain town, really. Yeah. Um, what was life? on this 11-acre plot of land like in this Uh, log cabin? It was so magical. It was magical because it was so stunning, and we were very much... Michael Dad's career was taking off. In the 80s and 90s, he was like the deal. So The Forgotten Carols was written in this home like five years after we moved in. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so So the inspiration worked. It was true. So we very much believe that you have to love where you live. Truly love it in order for you to be free enough to be creative. Like, and I rem- I've always known that. Like, we've only lived in stunning places. Um, you are just like speaking. You should talk to all of our clients. Oh, <laughs> right? Stack design. Because that's what we tell people all the time. If you, I mean, your house is literally the most important place. Oh, yeah. It's where you spend the most time. If you're not living in a place that inspires you, that you love that functions the way it's supposed to, how can you expect to feel inspired and happy in other areas of your life? Oh, it's, 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 it's not only mandatory, it's what I learned from watching my dad do it. So like we had multi-generations of family living at this house, so it was huge, but there was also a time when my, my dad's sister and her kids lived with us for a few years after he graduated from his PhD at Cornell and they were just like in transition. So there's always been a lot of people living at the house and mm-hmm. always, always there's parties. So mom is the hostess of the mostest. And I grew up putting up tables, putting up tables and chairs. And like for Thanksgiving, my parents put out this like eternal invitation to every human being that we know that was like, if you don't have any place to go, for Thanksgiving, you are always welcome for eternity to our house. I love that. Yeah, and we have like place settings for 150. Like, oh my goodness! And like all of this with this matching china. Like, mom's like it's her it's her thing to gather everyone together. Is it still like that now? Even though you're all grown? Oh yeah, it's oh, still for like sure. that. Everyone gathers. At the everyone home. gathers at the McLean house. And my mom's it's 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 almost ma- not mandatory. But it's, it's, she feels very much a mission about it, where growing up, everyone would come. I would always take people on tours of the house. So I was the youngest of and lived with my grandparents and was like best friends with all my grandparents' friends. Because my grandma, McLean, had this group called the Golden Girls. And like she grew up in Salt Lake and all of her friends are all the people who like, like run Salt Lake. Like, you know, we, they'd come over and they'd go do things in St. George. And there was this group of five friends that she had that I just was felt like their grandchild. And they'd come to every show I ever did. 
So I'm growing up in Heber, and it's like super small-town America stunning. And you have a very well-known, prominent father. Yeah. You know, how? tell me what it was like sort of growing up in the Utah culture and realizing, you know, you were yeah. gay and, yeah. and trying to navigate that and then also finding your own voice, literally. Yeah. One thing that's interesting that I thought it was just about being gay, like it would be perfect if you were straight, is what I always thought in my brain. So my brother's been coming back because he's an actor and theater's been closed for coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And he ended up writing a play called The Sound of the Stairs about growing up in the basement. And like what it was like growing up in the basement of this huge house and like recognizing the footsteps of the people that were coming down the stairs. How interesting. And his feelings about growing up in the space were very similar to my own. So um, growing up gay in Heber in the 80s was, um, I just learned to be quiet. Like I, I never, I, so I grew up in this gorgeous, stunning house that everybody came to to feel safe and love and warm. And I wasn't safe in my own home because I wasn't safe to be who I wanted to be. And I'm actually writing a book about it with my dad um, and a therapist about the gay LGBTQ perspective, the Mormon perspective, and a therapeutic perspective talking about kind of the process. I was petrified my whole life, but at the same time was with lovely, amazing people. Like my grandparents, my grandpa was pretty obsessive and a little abusive about cleanliness and this is my home, not your home, and, but was also kind of lovely and adorable at the same time. It was, um, it was a picturesque upbringing, but everything picturesque, the opposite side of picturesque, can be very ugly. Mm -hmm. And um, learning that I couldn't love who I was because God couldn't love me um, in, in, in this perfect setup was, um, was interesting. And every single one of us had to leave. Like, my brother left. I left. Um, when I was in high school, we moved to Malibu so I could take voice lessons. Your whole family moved? Yeah, we moved for me when I was in high school. Wow. But anyway, we're growing up with my grandparents. And it was this very interesting dynamic of like, my grandpa built this house. So it was like his baby. Mm -hmm. My parents were, be were not just our parents, but they were the children of their parents parenting us. Mm -hmm. So there was a very strange dynamic. Yeah. Like, we, I think we... My mom really naively believed that we could just all live in a beautiful, consecrated way and people would just show up and be fabulous. I really love my mother-in-law, but we can't live with her. No. No. No, no, it's no. It's really... I mean, that's... We could never live with my parents either. Ever. Yeah. No. It, it, no. And the thing is, is like, my mom thought that, that she could. So my dad's parents, I have not very many positive things to actually say about them. It was very not good. Grandpa didn't have another job, and so all he did was decide that his that my parents weren't raising us well enough, mm -hmm. and it was his job to teach us the gospel, and it was his job to teach us what was right and what was wrong, and it was his job to let us know that if we didn't make our bed, we were following the path of Satan. Like, it was very intense. Wow. And um, it, was, it was ugly. It was very ugly. And um, so much of stuff that was going on was hard because we were perfect. We were that perfect family. Yeah. And I think every family thinks they're perfect, too. Like, oh, at least we're not them. You know, our cousins with all that weird stuff. But we, um, 
we show up for each other in a beautiful way and we consistently talk about it. And we always, um, like all of this stuff that I'm telling you, I've talked about with my parents at Najum. Mm -hmm. Like we've, we've been working through a lot of stuff together. So my dad buys this, lives in this place that's his refuge mm -hmm. um, where he can be creative and write all of these songs. And he actually wrote this song about it. It was like, it's the, like the most beautiful song. It's like, if I could hold you in my arms, I'd hold you tightly. And I would long to have you near me every day. I have heard that song. That's about Heber. Really? At times like these, I wish there were a way to make my feelings work. So I will keep returning yearning just to stay. It's all about Heber. So my dad's creative outlet, Heaven is my hell. Small town, gay, Heber, Mormon umbrella. Yeah. And I just knew I had to be quiet. I knew that if I came out, my mom would send me to a camp to get electroshock therapy. Oh my gosh. And she says she would. Like, she was, we'll fix it. Because yeah. she comes from the, the land of like, military grandpa, Colonel Eginton, her, her, my, my, my mom's dad, my favorite human alive. He would literally take us fishing like on the river and like swear at us the whole time. <laughs> like mumbles, <laughs> taught us how to play cribbage, was just like totally hard, mean. I knew he loved me so much though. Yeah. And it, like get your fly on the thing and fly yeah. fish and all of that, like grumbly swearing. Being a boy in the McLean family and the Egerton family was the best because boys could go on all the trips and girls couldn't. Ugh. I know. It was so fun. And we'd do like 80-mile river run things with my other cousins. And then my mom's brother is a three-star general. So like Air Force, Air Force, Air Force. Wow. But they're like, you know, you accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. Yeah. My Pollyanna mom that was like, we're all good yeah. because I killed the bad. Yeah. <laughs> so I learned at eight, nine that I had to kill a part of myself. Like a part of myself wasn't accepted. So I just hid. But all the while, I mean, you're exceptionally talented. So you're growing up in this environment with this really talented musician father. You're a talented singer yeah. and actor in your own right. Well, what's cool too is like my dad was raised in a family where he wanted to be a big tennis star and his parents couldn't afford it. And so a lot of his dreams, I love like the, I love the generational response. I love that, um, you know, my grandparents' response to scarcity and depression and not having enough was to build and orchestrate this 10,000 square foot home yeah. that my parents live in. And they're like, and they're like, let's let everybody come. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents are like, no, they'll mess it up. Yeah. Like, and so their response is, no, we want everybody to show up. And so because no one showed up for my dad for his dreams, mm -hmm. and he's very much self-made, my dad was going to show up for us. Yeah. And he was going to pay for the thing and help our dreams come true. So I had a voice lesson when I was like 15, 16. And the voice teacher, Seth Riggs, was like, you're the best thing I've ever heard. I want to teach you myself. And my parents were like, we're going to move to California and help you support your dreams. Wow. So there's that unbelievable. So I started singing when I was eight. And my mom started getting lessons. And I just like, and my sister did. And I just kind of like joined along on the whole adventure of singing. But what's great about having a dream in the McLean family is that, you know how they say you need like 10,000 hours to be good at something? 
We got 10,000 hours. Like, I didn't have to do anything but sing. Like, I, like everything else was taken care of. Like, wow. insurance, visa bills, um, where we want to live. Mom and dad, the consecrated idea that what we started with is that it's all everybody's. They actually believe. My grandparents didn't get it. They, they didn't understand that. that. But my, my mom and my dad taught us it's all ours. So if my sister or my brother need anything, it's theirs. Like, they don't even have to ask. Like, it's like, like we, we support each other in a really aggressive way, which is awesome. The flip side is that we're all, like, I was working at the time with my dad singing with the church and the thing. It was, it's all kind of, it's all a little codependent. <laughs> so your parents, though, identified this gift in you yeah and they were like we're we're all on we're board all for on it board. Yeah. so we're gonna move to california so, so you moved to california yeah. they kept the house in heber so we kept the house in heber at the time my grandparents were becoming really insufferable and we kind of needed to leave so we a little we got a little kicked out like to be truthful living with my grandparents became too hard the older they got mm -hmm. and my mom thought it was just you know her like my dad's parents but my cousins were living with my mom's parents at the same similar age and um my cousins have the same experience with her parents like yeah. it's the multi-generational don't mess up my sheets yes. when you have kids running around yeah. it's just it doesn't actually work in our experience yeah people i think as they get older too they become less flexible they get more set in their ways um, I know I do. Yeah, yeah. everybody does. Yeah. I think as you get older, you you it becomes harder to adapt to change and yes. flexibility. And children are constantly changing, changing and mm -hmm. forcing you to adapt. Right. Um, so what was it like in California? You were uh, how old at this point? By the way, so we went from gorgeous Heber. Yes. To my mom was like because they both moved their whole lives every two years. My mom in the military. My dad. My dad like. My grandpa got a different job every couple of years. So they're like, we moved every two years growing up. So we're going to move. And my mom's like, I want to live on the beach. So we got, um, and what's cool is, oh, my parents paid off Heber on the first royalty check of the Forgotten Carols. Wow. Yeah. So they got this big royalty check because the Forgotten Carols boomed. Nobody thought it would be successful. <laughs> And Desiree Puck was like, sure, you can have huge royalties for this thing that we don't think is going to be good. So um, he got this really killer royalty deal because Desiree Puck was like, mm, well, hope it goes well. And dad's like, if we sell X amount, which Desiree Puck was like, that's going to be way too many. I want my royalty to be more. And they're like, okay. So they did the deal and it actually turned out to be in, work in his favor. So I remember the day they paid off the house. Like it was... We paid off the house. Like, literally, we did a whole parade around the house. It's the amazing. Paying off the house. Yeah. And when they found out later, they paid off the house, but because of taxes and everything else that they weren't thinking about, like, we ended up having to live on food storage for, like, four <laughs> months because they were so stoked to pay off the house. And then they're like, wait, we don't get any more write-offs and there's a tax thing. And, like, it turned – we're not brilliant with money. Let's just be real. But, yeah, so they paid off the house and then we couldn't afford anything for, like, six months. But the house was paid off, like, when I was, like, early 90s. Yeah. So the reason we could live in Malibu was because we didn't have a mortgage. Wow. Yeah. So um, so my dad gets in the car. He drives down the PCH for um, – what's it called? Uh, uh, spring break. Mm -hmm. I did my master uh, the master class in March. 
And um, he, he went, he was doing a business thing in April. He drove down the PCH. He pulled off the road. There was this condos called Tivoli Cove. Oh my gosh, I love and it's just past Malibu Seafood on oh the PCH. So there's the Pepperdine. You go down the hill, yeah. and then there's Malibu Seafood. The very next left turn is called Seagull Way or Seagull Drive. And he pulled over. He's like, this is it. And he rented the condo, and we moved in May. Holy cow. It was like the most fabulous adventure. And we go from this 10,000-square-foot mansion to this, like, 800-square-foot loft one bedroom thing and I have never been happier. Was it you and your parents or you, your parents, Just, your brother and your sister? Okay, so my brother's a year older and then he got it ex- accepted to um, Pasadena, American Academy of Dramatic oh, Arts. okay. And then my older sister was going on her mission to Madrid. Okay. So I was the last baby. So it was just you it and they just could put me. all of their attention on you. Yeah, so we moved to Malibu. We finished school about a month earlier than Malibu. So we we go down in May. It's this like on the beach, crashing waves. Dreamy. Ti- it was two levels, but it was that tiny little kitchen with like the grout in the tile thing. That was heaven. It was so cheesy. It was the best. And it had a pool and tennis court. It was like a little condo thing where mm-hmm. a lot of people who went to Pepperdine lived. Anyway, it was this tiny, tiny, tiny house. And that's when mom and dad and I actually just got to become like best friends. Because it was just the two the two of us. Well, I the didn't three. the yeah. three of us. Yeah. <laughs> the two of us. It was <laughs> the two of them and I. Yeah. The three of us. And I didn't realize how much pressure it was for them to be kids of parents that had a lot of needs. Like my grandma made sure that no one would ever felt safe because nothing was ever enough. And so much of what my dad is is a response to wanting to be valuable enough for his parents. Like the more famous I am, the more lovable I will be, the more I'll have. The Heart of the Home continues in just a moment. Hey everyone, just letting you know about our accessories collection now on Stag Design Shop. It's growing from candlesticks to rugs to luxurious throws. These items will elevate your home and make great companions to our artwork, pillows, and existing accessories. You can view the new collection for yourself at stagdesignshop.com. That's stag with two G's. So you're in California, you're forming a tighter relationship with your parents. Did they already know at this point that you were gay? No. No. No, being gay wasn't an option because being gay was wrong. And the only way to be gay at the time was to be molested or to be molested. So I was taught the only way to be who I was was to have a really aggressive assault made against me. And that assault from the person, the person that assaulted me, at the time and still would be persecuted, put in jail, and then killed in jail for the horror right. of the assault. So like, like the only way for me to be me was to be perpetrated against. And that's what was taught, trained, uh, like, uh, like completely normal. And then also at the time, just marry a woman. That's horrifying. Was like what all of the people five, ten years older than me did. They all just married women thinking it would just go away. So there was a lot of fear around gayness. There was a lot. I just could not come out. And I think people only come out when they can. Like I I know for myself, like, why didn't you come out earlier? Like, no one, the idea that you 
People can only manage what they can manage. And it's different now. It's totally different now. Oh, it's way different now. I mean, still still lots of stigmas, right? And still challenging in the Mormon culture to come out. But definitely more options now than there were, you know, when we were kids. Yeah. What was weird is that, like, we've always lived in these beautiful, amazing places, with like everyone felt so welcome and loved around my parents. And I got to go to firesides where dad would like stop in the middle of the fireside and be like, I feel the spirit that they need to, someone needs to hear this. And I got to know specifically that strangers and other people were more important than I was because my parents were willing to see them as they were, but I, they would refuse to see me as I was. So I'd go to school, get teased, be called a faggot constantly. And then I couldn't come home and tell my parents because that didn't exist. They would not look at it. They would not see it. And I learned that God couldn't manage it. So yeah. here I am in Malibu moving so I can have opportunities to connect to my voice because the biggest voice teacher in the world said I was the best thing ever. So here my singing voice is every Mormon's favorite. And I'm the voice that dad never had. And at the same time, I go and sing and perform when did my first album when I was 17. Um, And I would perform for thousands and thousands of Mormons all over the world. And I knew that if they knew who I was, they wouldn't even let me in the room, let alone say I'm their favorite person. And everybody wanted me to marry their daughter. And like, it was this, I, I learned how to lie. And I also ran away a lot. There was a lot, I, there was a line in the sand. The Mormons said, you can't be gay. We don't do gay. And so they kind of kick you out, which is really great. My brother didn't get that opportunity. Like, he, as a straight guy, it's much harder for him. Because at the time, it was, like, very clear. Like, because, like, I want to be gay, and I am Mormon. I'm going to make try to make it work. And that's insufferable. It's like, oh, we're going to try to pretend to like you, and maybe, like, I can't. So what's great is I had the opportunity to feel unbelievably supported and be the best at something, um, singing, but I couldn't value who I was. So I I learned I was unlovable and unworthy of God's love and was living in like the epicenter of joyful Mormon realness in the most beautiful place in the world. And then we moved to Malibu. It was the most beautiful place in the world. And I was like friends with everybody who was famous and like, it was insane. And I was at voice lessons with like Michael Jackson and Josh Groban was my vocal peer. And like I was singing with David Foster in high school stuff. And like it was insane. It was That's like, a lot of pressure. It was star studded. And what's cool is I was going to be famous. I was going to be the next voice. I was going to be the next Johnny Osmond. And the only thing I needed to do was not be gay. Not be gay. Yeah. It was like, you know, Britney Spears' sister. They're like, when she was like becoming a big deal, and they're like, you're amazing. Just don't get pregnant. And then she got and pregnant. And then she got yeah, pregnant. Yeah, it was, like, if I totally related. I was like, wow, that's me. So I'd be at all these voice lessons with all these famous people and trying to audition for all this stuff like American Idol and get record deals. And every time I'd go in, I messed up. I would go in and I'd, and I, and I'd like crack on a song. I would pretend I wasn't prepared when I was because I knew deep, deep down I couldn't, I wasn't being authentic to my true self. And um, it's funny, I have some students, I have a student um, friend that I just met who um, just signed a big record deal. And he's about 19. And he's so authentic to himself. And it's like, oh, that's why that couldn't have happened for me. 
And it's like, I couldn't have been famous and under the microscope and coming out. It would have been too much. It would have been way too much. So I feel really blessed that things didn't really take off. But it's weird to be, you know, 17 and have like everybody in the room go, you're going to be famous someday. Remember me. You're like, well, what if I'm not famous? It was a very clear track for me. And the only thing was to not be gay. So I end up realizing that I can't, um, I go on a mission. Um, While I'm away from my mission, my parents go back home from, they leave Malibu. And then when I come home from my mission, um, I go to BYU. I'm at BYU for a while. And I didn't really deal with anything gay until college. And it seemed like everyone at BYU was gay. It was in your at, circles, probably. Yeah, I was yeah. like in the MDT program, the yeah. ambassador program, and everybody was gay. And the thing about not being gay or not having it be a choice is it wasn't like I was looking at porn and having boyfriends and doing a thing on the side. I just was doing nothing. So there was just this belated growth process because I'd look at these people that were like, well, you're gay too, and how's your boyfriend? I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, I have a boyfriend. But I, and I'm like, well, you're said yes to the honor code. If you're going to have a boyfriend, have a boyfriend. Just don't lie and say you're going to do it's a lot of it's like the i don't know if this is too deep to talk about but like a lot of gay men who marry women feel completely justified having an affair with you in a very real way where they're like well i'm with a woman and i'm unhappy and that's okay for me to now have this affair with you as a man and do a gay thing and i'm like no you're just cheating <laughs> and it's interesting because I'm like, a lot of men who I've dated who left their wives are like, well, I'll date you and be with you. And I'm like, well, you cheated on your last partner. So you're kind of a cheater. Like, that's what you do. And I could expect you'd probably cheat on me. And they're like, no, 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 I wouldn't. But the pattern is I'm comfortable living a lie. I'm comfortable doing one thing and saying I'm doing it and then do another. When and you can't be who you when truly you can't are, be who you truly are. Then you justify a way to actually be yeah. who you are in a different way. Yeah. And I judged people very harshly until I actually fell in love for the first time. And then I was like, oh, I get it. This is amazing. Like I fell in love with this guy. I've left BYU because I wasn't wanted to go be a rock star. And um and I was going to go be famous. And I left BYU and was going to LA to get record deals and everything. And then realized I couldn't actually be like true to myself. But anyway, I met this guy, fell in love and was like, this is what they're talking about. Like when you get all shaky and amazing around somebody, you're like, this is what sexual attraction is. Because I had been suppressed and nothing had happened. And then it was like this deluge of like, wow, I want to kiss you. Like I never wanted to kiss a girl in my life. And I had to force myself to be attracted to the thing that I was supposed to have. And most Mormons are really good at trying to be good at something they, that doesn't, that they can't be perfect at. Like, um, I'm really comfortable trying to get men to be in love with me instead of knowing what it's like to have somebody actually love me back. Because um, my whole life has been trying to make something work. Also, because I never felt like I was worthy of love. And I lived in these stunning places. Every place I lived, I had to make immaculate. Because the more immaculate the place, and I genuinely feel the reason that gay men are such brilliant designers is because they don't feel safe where they are. And the way that they can feel safe is by making the space around them look perfect and be spectacular because they personally themselves feel unworthy and unlovable. I genuinely feel that. 
Wow. That like, the more beautiful my space is, the more I will show you that I'm worthy of being Project. Here. There, I project it because most gay men had zero tribal connection. Like, I didn't belong in my home, I didn't belong in my church, and I didn't belong in my family. So there's this core fracture. And I knew I was unsafe, and I knew I didn't belong anywhere. And the more beautiful my space was, the more I could show, the more beautiful I am. You're like, all these gay men are so gorgeous. I'm like, yeah, because we want to be worthy. We want to be lovable, and we want to be physically perfect. Because when we're physically perfect, then we can be lovable. Then we can be undeniably beautiful. And if I'm undeniably beautiful, then I'm worthy to be here. And that was something I genuinely believed was the case because I didn't know how to generate my own self-love or believe in a God that could love me or, or know how to love myself. So I was beautiful by where I lived. I lived in Malibu and look at my beautiful home. That's my, and look, this is my famous dad and this is my famous voice coach. And I was defined by all of the things that I could collect that gave me value. Look how beautiful this room is. Like, and then the beauty and the perfection of the space gave me permission to um, have a false sense of value. So you're kind of still living in this not out yet, you know, finding your career path. How did you end up in New York? Oh, so I was, okay, so what happened was after my mission, I wanted to move back to LA. I go to LA and I'm like, going to be a big deal. Everything falls apart. Seth Riggs is like, I worked on this demo for like six months to learn how to go, like become like more, less vanilla. Because before I was like, singing so perfectly. And I had this perfect technical voice. I wasn't connecting to myself. I just sang pretty. That's all I did. And, um... Seth was like, well, if you want to like do well, you got to learn how to riff and stuff. So I did like three hours a day with this coach about how to like sing cool. And I did a demo called American Idol Reject because I got rejected from American Idol like four times I auditioned. And I did this demo and I played it for Seth. He's like, this sucks. Why, why aren't you mixing? Because his technique was more important than me. And my dad's career was more important than me. My, my, the church was more important than me. So I just was gravitated to all of these relationships where people let me know I wasn't as important as the thing they were doing. So I serviced everybody's thing perfectly. I sang great for my dad. I was the perfect student for Seth Riggs. I was the best missionary that had ever been. And then when I couldn't do it anymore, I would just, Seth was like, this doesn't work. You're not mixing. Why'd you flip to falsetto? Something on some huge song. And I was like, I spent six months doing this and you can't even see past or see why I would choose to go falsetto instead of mix here. You suck. I'm out. So that kind of all came crumbling down. I was all by myself. Um, well, I was in, in Malibu staying at like a friend's house Our our friend, like the old Bishop in the ward. And um, our friends that our, our big friend, this architect, Bruce Bolander, built this like house in the Canyon in Malibu. And he's like, you guys should move back to LA. So things with my grandparents weren't going great. So they moved back to Malibu and we lived in this glass palace house on like 10,000 acres of Santa Monica Forest Reserve looking over this canyon. It was the most beautiful home ever. And it was the, again, this like 1200 square foot, like glass menagerie 
cement bathrooms, like looking out over the over the ocean and like up into the can. It was the most beautiful home ever. Like this modern thing. And, and then you decided I'm going to give this all up and move to a little tiny cro- cockroach infested house in New York. <laughs> By the way, my story is a little different. So what happens is I'm coming out. We're in LA. My parents moved to LA. Everyone's in LA again. I'm all of a sudden working with my family. Scott and I are trying to do an album together. I'm realizing I can't make this work. I end up realizing I can't do the Mormon thing anymore. I can't do the Mormon church. What am I going to do? I decide I'm going to go do musical theater. Because that's what gay people do. <laughs> and everybody's like, I'll go sing in musical theater. So I go, my dad did a show off Broadway called The Ark. So I knew a bunch of people in New York. So I kind of called all of them and was like, what do I need to do? And they're like, you need your equity card. So I auditioned for Joseph at Tuacon. And I ended up doing um, Joseph there to get my equity card. I did like six performances of like the replacement Joseph. And an equity card should take like over a year to get. And I got it in like three weeks. And I got this equity card. I was so excited. I auditioned while I was there for this like world cruise. I come out fully in St. George. There's this world cruise. I go around the world for nine months. While going around the world, I meet these two twins. This is German luxury liner. I meet these two twins and they're like my favorite people in the world. We become best friends from Singapore to Dubai. I'm hanging out with these two twin girls that are like on the ship because one of them's in love with like the chef. And I'm like, I want to move to New York. And they're like, why don't you just move into our apartment? And I was like, that's weird. You have an apartment in New York? Well, yeah, no, but we live on this farm thing up in upstate. So wait, you have a farm in upstate? What? Okay, cool. Um, Sure. I'll live in your apartment in New York. So I say yes to the dress. My first apartment in New York... They said, why would you want to pay rent in the most expensive city in America? And I said, I don't. It was uh, Central Park West, four-bedroom, four-bath, lo- overlooking the park. So you've had it really rough when it comes to and spaces. And I haven't paid rent. I, the first time I paid rent, I was 34. Oh, my gosh. And I lived in this penthouse apartment overlooking the city. It was my first apartment for free. And while living there, I, got, I booked Spamalot, this show, and I moved to Vegas. And they put us up in Vegas. And then from from living in Vegas, working at the Wynn, working with like Mike Nichols and like, you know, John O'Hurley and all the Monty Python people, it was incredible. And Steve Wynn and everything. And then I went from that to being on the first national tour of Legally Blonde. where So I just basically went from thing to thing. And um, I booked Warner in the first national tour of Legally Blonde. And that's where I met my now ex-husband. And we they put us up for all of those two years. Then um, we moved to San Francisco to do a show called Tales of the City, where we did with our Amistad Maupin, and we lived on Sacramento and Jones, and I was, like, across the street from, like, this one-bedroom apartment across the street from the cathedral and the Fairmont, and, like, I've only ever lived in the most immaculate places in the world. (laughs) And, like, we were there for, like, six months, and, like, hanging out with Jake Shears, and, like the lead singer, the Scissor Sisters, who was doing the music and like hanging with like all these famous people. And so coming out was really amazing and fun. I was ultimately running away. So I ended up getting married to my now ex-husband and I thought partnership would give me value. So I live in these amazing places. I have amazing friends. They're all famous. I'm worthy. You're on this trajectory trajectory. to be this Broadway star. I'm going to be hugely famous. And then I find that I've like married 
to this guy who doesn't actually want to be married. Because I didn't know how to ask for what I wanted. You know, I would, I, and I also couldn't ask if I could afford it. Like, whatever I had to do to be and look perfect was what the cost was. So whatever the, however I had to remodel the room, the places I was living, the chandeliers, I, do, I, wasn't, I didn't have to pay for anything. So I would redo, remodel. I would always have the finest clothes and always look so perfect and always have a personal trainer and always had to like have perfect skin. Had a skin lady since I was 20. Like full on, I did this thing with Forgotten Carols where I sang the, the um, Let Him In because they're filming it this year because they can't go on tour. And the guy who sings Homeless came up and he was like, wow, you look so good. It seems so effortless. I'm like, <laughs> I'm 41. <laughs> My alabaster face with wrinkle-free. Come on now. <laughs> like not a freckle in sight. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Elise Wilcox of Gateway Aesthetics. <laughs> so like, there, there's just, he was like, I was, and I, I lost a ton of weight because I was like, gained some stuff and it was very aggressive, the diet I was on. And I didn't have a carb for like six months. And like, I had lost all of this weight and I looked perfect. I'm like, this is a full-time job. And I'm trying desperately. Well, now that I've, I'm, I'm learning how to love myself now and generate my own value, independent of, of anything else. And it's this whole transitionary life thing where it's like, wow. So I'm in New York, married this guy, pioneer of gay marriage, pioneer of gay divorce. <laughs> and um, he had a rent-stabilized apartment in, uh, on 181st in Fort Washington. It was gorgeous. It was like rent-stabilized, just over $1,000 a month for two bedrooms. And it was kind of wow. dilapidated. And I spent all of my money fixing it. Replastered the walls, redid the electrical, rechanged the kitchen, because I was going to have kids in it. Because I was going to marry the guy and have kids and have a whole family. And that's what I was going to do. So everybody was like, why are you spending all this money on this rent-stabilized apartment? And it is stunning, like immaculate. I did this eco-strip thing where I re-stripped all of the wood. So the thousands of years of New York apartment yeah. gross. I stripped it all because I did for the lead poisoning thing. Mm -hmm. And I got this heater that would melt it, scraped off that is every so much work. inch of paint and repainted everything. It was gorgeous. So every space that I'm in, I make immaculate. And it doesn't matter what it costs. Because my grandpa taught me the only way that you can be worthy to be in this home is if you make your bed. And if it looks great all the time. And look at this popcorn you left on the ground. And that's not clean enough. Mm -hmm. And this is my house. This isn't your house. And in order to be worthy, it has to be perfect. And so, that messaging, I think you carried through every part of your life, every right? Part of my like, life. Yeah. I have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay, I can't come out of the closet. Okay, I. I, I can't live that way anymore. So now yeah. I'm out of the closet. So now I marry somebody. And, and that has to be gonna, perfect. And that's going to give me value. And that's going to make me lovable. And then I'm going to be the, the yeah. picturesque gay couple living in this beautiful place and in New York. And everybody's going to know that I'm worthy because I'm famous. And, and, I'm, and I'm a big deal. And I have all of the, And see, I, got a, I bamboozled someone to love me. Ergo, I'm lovable. Because when you're married in the Mormon church, you're worthy. Yeah. Like, you get to be on the mantle. Mm -hmm. If you're the single sibling... Ugh, the things your mom accidentally says. So I thought that all of these external things, the beauty of my home, my partner, mm -hmm. fame, famous people, gorgeous circumstances, amazing, elaborate clothing, looking hot, would fix everything. And when it didn't, I had many crises. And if by many, major. Major. Um, major, like... 
I remember I worked. So the thing is, is that um, I got to be perfect. And whenever I say this, people I get so, it's so weird, the, re- the reactions. Um, and it's beautiful. I love the reactions. But it's, I got to be the best singer on earth. As given stamped by the quote unquote prophet of voice. Yeah. And he said, you're it. And I got to be a 10. And what's weird about being a 10 is everybody wants everybody to be a five. Like, if you're too, like, oh, Jen, I know your business is doing really, really well, but like, what about your family? You know, like, we just want to tear you down Everything. enough. Crabs in a bucket. Yeah, just we want to tear you down just enough to be in the middle with us. Mm-hmm. But if you're depressed and say, oh, let, let's, we got to go buoy up. You know, Jen, she's not doing well. Mm-hmm. So the idea is we want everybody to be a five. So when you're a 10 and you're like, I'm the best at this. In my mind, you can be perfect. Like I had a perfect voice. And I got the opportunity to do nothing else for 38 years. And here's what's great. I'm 41 now. But like, I did nothing else but sing. I had nothing else to worry about. I literally sang all the time, every day, all day, from the best trainers in the whole entire world. And was that's all I ever did. I genuinely have no other skills. And what's interesting is I did the same thing with my body. I worked with a trainer. I ate the right things every day. I got to 5% body fat. And I looked perfect. Like I was working with bodybuilder trainers. All I did was work out. All I did was go to the gym. And all I did was obsess about what I was eating. And then happened to sing a little bit. <laughs> and then the, I ha- got this perfect body and people looked at me. And in my mind, I knew. If, and I had liposuction at 24 because I didn't like who oh I was before I came out. And I was too fat to be on stage. And the, I was too fat in the ugliest thing ever. So I was so worried that I was never going to be enough that the second I looked perfect, like people would look at me and go, wow, you can love yourself. And I thought I could. I genuinely thought, see that guy over there that looks perfect? He clearly can love himself. I've achieved. I've achieved the epicenter of all things. And I'm the most attractive thing in the world. And I didn't like who I was. And it was like the Twilight Zone. Psycho. I had a total nervous breakdown. Where I was like, and then I just ate Ben and Jerry's. For months. I was like, I, I was so unhappy. Because my whole life growing up, I couldn't be hot because I couldn't be sexual. So I had to be a little heavy and a little just not hot enough because I couldn't value my body. And it wasn't like I was worried about like, you know, being sexual or like taking showers with other people or anything like that. It was like, I just couldn't like my own body because I couldn't feel safe. Because if I was attractive to other men, uh, th- and I, I lured that in because this was the 90s when it was all your fault. Right. <laughs> you're clearly taunting men because yes. you're hot. Like, like these men have no choice. You have to be... So yeah. we were taught as children that we had to be protect ourselves through mm-hmm. size. And I would eat to be big, to not be sexual, because I couldn't be. And that would push away anybody. And when I was going through my divorce, I started smoking cigarettes. I was like, I didn't want, I wanted the big F you. I didn't want to be with a smoker, but I would push people away that saw me smoking. Because mm-hmm. it would say, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be around any of this. So... I'm in New York. I have this like total, my marriage is falling apart. And God's like, go home. You got this very clear feeling Uh, like you needed to go home. Abundantly clear. So I get this abundantly clear like message from God. And he's like, go home to Heber. 
And I'm like super depressed. I have no value. My I have this great career, but my partnership's failing. It triggers that I'm unlovable. I can't say that out loud at that point. And I've been trying to mask it with all this gorgeousness. So anyway, I go home to the epicenter, to Scottshaven, which is the name of the property where I learned to hate myself in Heber City, Utah. And I go home and I'm home. In the house where my, and living in the room my grandpa built, where he taught me, and I've been going to therapy, and I've learned the voice in my head that says you're unlovable and you're unworthy is the voice of my grandpa McLean. And I've been trying to get him out of my head. And I'm home at the epicenter of all the trauma because I know I'm supposed to be there. And I'm in the room with my mom and dad, hashing it out. And I'm repainting all of the rooms. I'm reclaiming the space. What was that feeling when you walked in the doors after you, after this journey and you realize perfection is not what it's cracked up to be? Yeah. And by the way, everything's falling apart. And I feel like I was called to go home. Mm-hmm. You walk in the door. How are you feeling? I walk in the door. I was despondent. And I was like, pretty suicidal. Like I was just very, very, very sad because I, I knew I couldn't be happy because I didn't know how to generate myself love. And I didn't want to say out loud that I felt like I was unlovable and unworthy. And the place I learned I was unworthy is the place I walked into. And so I walk in and I'm like, oh. Did it feel heavy? things to do. Yeah. It, did it heavy. felt heavy, but it also felt like home. It was all of it. What was the response from your parents? Uh, Super great. They were like, let's go on this little journey together. So I go home. The thing is, is that we have this 10,000 square foot house that's 40 years old that's like falling apart. Like, like the thing about having the big house is you got to keep fixing Maintaining. It. You have to maintain. Maintaining a house where your grandpa decided to do this elaborate, like over the top, too much thing mm-hmm. where there's no central air because it, there was no global warming in 1984. So you could open the windows at night and get cool and the walls are thick and then close them. And I'm like, of course, Grandpa McLean didn't do a thing that's easy. Everything about that house is inconvenient. You can't just have sent, like comfortable air. You got to work to open the windows and close the windows and do all this stuff. So I end up like having a really successful, like I moved again. So I just like kind of ran away again but home. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting really successful with um, voice teaching. And then I had a studio in LA for a while where I was teaching everybody famous. And it just, I instantly succeed at whatever it is that I'm doing. And I feel very blessed by that. Um, and then I started this other relationship that it was the, you do the, you do the relationships and you live the life and the uglier and grosser and more ridiculous it is, the more abusive the relationship mm-hmm. you're in, the more you go, what am I doing? Yeah. And I, I, I know that we want to protect everybody from awful, terrible things. But those awful, terrible things, I know God's in. I know it's, that's part of God helping you learn. And the more awful, the more you go, wait, what am I agreeing to? And, and like when I watch things about like, you know, houses where there's like a hoarder situation, and it's just filthy and gross. And the things that people allow themselves to live in. And you go, oh, my God, how did we get here? In those places, that's where I think that Heavenly Father lives, too. Like, yeah. it gets to the point where you're like, what am I agreeing to? 
Yeah. What, 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 what is okay? And in that, that reveals the value you place on yourself. Yeah. And also what you're willing to receive. Yeah. Like getting a designer and saying, I need somebody to help me make a space that I can't do on my own mm -hmm. and make it perfect and speak a language. And I'm willing to pay for that process. That's an investment it's in yourself. It's an investment in yourself. And it's, and it's an investment in creating a space that's beautiful and lovely and amazing. And that's something that like you choose to receive for yourself. Because I know a lot of people with plenty of money that are like, oh, I would never. I yeah. would never do that. And it's just interesting how we value ourselves and the things we're willing to receive. Everything I received, I made space for. And every relationship that was toxic, I agreed to. Yeah. And what's cool about looking at everything as I look back, I was very much partnered with all of my decisions. And I know that even though it seems that God couldn't have been a part of any of those, he absolutely was. I... I feel like I had I had an Oprah aha moment just now when oh, you were talking. Yes, please. Because I feel like that's such a poignant way of explaining why investing in your home is such an important thing is that you're really investing in yourself and you're making you're you're saying to yourself, I am worthy mm -hmm. of investing in my surroundings and creating a space that suits me mm -hmm. and letting go of this emotional baggage that you grew up with, mm -hmm. right? Because we all have it. Yeah. I always say to John, I just don't want to screw up our kids. Please no. don't let me screw up our kids. Uh, yeah, for sure. But everybody, you know, and John's always like, we will. We like, will. There will it's be something inevitable. that our kids are unhappy about, right? But by therefore investing in your home and making it you, mm -hmm. you're working through emotional baggage. Absolutely. It, what's amazing to me is how hard I worked to make my spaces beautiful reflected the things that I was willing to do to feel worthy in the space mm -hmm. and how hard I worked. If I didn't have the money, I did it myself. Yeah. So, so when I'm home, I move home, I decide that I'm going to – I got divorced – Mm -hmm. And I'm decided that I need my own place. So dad and I, I obviously need dad to help me buy a house because mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, everything's so expensive. But I decided I'm going to go get a house. And I thought, oh, I'll get a fixer-upper. I'll get a thing. I end up finding this house in Sugar House. It's the most gorgeous. Like, she's a designer now. Like, Rachel Wright? She was, like, the big Adobe party person. Like, she planned all their events. She curated this home within an inch of its life, and it was the most gorgeous thing I'd ever seen. And so it was perfect. And it was, like, turnkey ready. The basement wasn't done, and I ended up finishing the basement. But what's interesting is that my parents were all about, here's this home that you're going to have so that you can have a family in it. So it wasn't like I bought a house for me alone mm -hmm. on the realistic understanding that in this moment, I'm a single person and I don't really have the job that makes that much money. Mm -hmm. We bought the house on the idea that you got to buy the house to live in the thing to learn the thing. Mm -hmm. Turns out I couldn't afford it. And not being able to afford it, I was making a lot of money as a voice teacher and I had all of this success, but I didn't, I, I didn't mow my own lawn. Like, I, I got so overwhelmed by how hard it was that I didn't ask if I could afford it. And I didn't have anyone say, maybe you should see if you can afford it before you do it. I had, I have to make this happen. Mm -hmm. And I was dealing with my own value and, like, understanding my own worth 
And then I had this relationship that was so ugly. <laughs> it's awful. I look, it just, it's laughable, the things that I agreed to. In this relationship, and I was going to give me worth, and it fell apart in this really horrific way. And afterward, I was repeating all my cycles. I couldn't heal. I couldn't change. I couldn't do anything. And I was triggering that I'm unlovable. Mm -hmm. And it was true. I can't get someone else to bamboozle them into loving me. Therefore, I'm unworthy. I'm in a house that's supposed to be a house that I have a partner in, and I can't get a partner. And I'm unworthy. I'm unlovable. And I was despondently suicidal. I'm like, what kills you? And I was like, drugs. And I had a really intense drug um, journey where I started like I was shooting up and like had like this very intense drugs situation that um, at first was very much like me isolated in a room and I didn't want to like do anything else. And while on drugs and this hyper methed mania, I um, made a lot of discoveries about myself and about God, I like saying things out loud. And then when I wanted to stop, I couldn't. And so I ran to tell my parents about it. And I said, I'm a drug addict and like, I can't stop. And so they're like, well, let's help. Let's go on this journey of recovery. So I went on this journey of recovery and I ended up selling my house and going home. And while I was home, I wanted to reconnect to earth. So I like, and it's very cliche that like, usually people in drug addict recovery, like get like a thousand animals. And I did. <laughs> I'm like, you know, that kind of like stereotype where you're like, oh my gosh, she went in recovery and then got chickens. I got chickens. So all of a sudden, we have this like plot of land on the 11 acres that doesn't have any use. And it's like this long strip. And I ended up being like, I want to reconnect to earth and I want to reconnect to animals and I want to reconnect to my home. And I became Farmer Jeff. And I built this huge fenced area with my friend Tom who like had steers at the time with his kids for the fair and ended up raising these steers called Chansey and Tall Tail. And I did this little Instagram situation where I was like Farmer Jeff and I built this like massive chicken den where I know that everything tries to chill kill chickens. By the way, I was always so scared of chickens in my whole life growing up. We never had animals because my grandparents wouldn't, couldn't stand them. And I was like, if I'm going to eat eggs and if I'm going to eat chicken, I have to raise it. And if I'm going to eat meat and beef, I have to raise a cow and I have to lovingly like raise it and be willing to raise it or else I can't eat it. That was the whole thing. And while raising these beautiful, amazing animals and like building shelters for them and like fences and feeding them and every morning, like going and lovingly, like holding them, I learned how to um, love myself and take care of myself through taking care of something else. And um, I built things on land that, and in a town that I knew didn't love me. And I was able to reconnect to the soil and reconnect to the people and realize that I was very much loved in this town. And when you're 14 and everyone's against you and you're just in your own world. And I went home and was home and healing. And I let everyone help me heal. And in the place where I learned I was unlovable is the place where I learned to love myself. And the home, like the space is so different now. It feels different. It feels totally different. And now that I've like gone through a lot of healing and a lot of reconnecting to my inner child and so much therapy, <laughs> therapy is amazing. Um, I'm now like 41 and I'm stoked 
to live a new life. Like so much of my life was proving and protecting my value. It's like, which I'm grateful for all of the, all of what that was. But now that I don't have to prove and protect anymore, my value and whether you love me or don't love me or whether I'm worthy of being here or not worthy of being here. Like I have so much more energy. Like I'm not exhausting my energy just trying to be okay in my own skin. It's a weight that has lifted. It's a weight that has lifted. And so I'm I like, it's so funny because like I went through this whole process of like, I'm writing a book. I'm writing my book, my, my, my whole story about this whole process. And it's been beautifully therapeutic and showing up to a space now, it was funny. I'm building a studio outside in my front yard um, to teach voice in, and I had to paint it. And it was the first time I'd ever painted a room to just paint a room, to have it be a reflection that I was worthy of being there. And it was so weird. I was like, wow, I'm like in this beautiful space. Like I took the shed outside next to our little pond. It's beautiful. It used to be like this play shed that was like filled with spiders. And I've redone it so that the students don't have to come in the house for lessons. And I was out there and I was like, this is stunning and beautiful. This is great. And I, I, I was like doing all the same things I'd done before, but it had completely new meaning. It didn't have to be perfect. And I didn't have to get the edges right. And it was, I wanted to get the edges right, but I, I was painting and creating a space that was an extension of a love for myself instead of out of a desperate need to have the space be perfect so that I could love myself from an external th place. And it was so insane. What's the feeling when you walk in your home in Hebrew now? How has it changed? Um... I feel a lot of peace around being able to, A, express my feelings around it, my pain, my trauma, talk about it, and also to be able to, like, joke about it. We, it's like, it's not so precious anymore because I've written it down. I've talked about it in therapy. I've made it, I vocalized all the things that I couldn't say, all of the stuff that you can't do. I found value in all the, the places that weren't valuable and my, it's funny, my brother and I were walking through it the other day and we're like, this place is so beautiful. Oh my gosh, it's gorgeous here. And he's like, why did we have to leave? Why do we feel so compelled that we need to live somewhere else? And I turned to him and I was like, trauma's big, Scott. And as he works through his and we work through it together, you know, it's my mom built a home for all of her grandchildren for a huge home that's way bigger than anybody could handle, for grandchildren that don't exist. And she has three kids, two of which aren't married, one of which only has two kids and three stepkids, so five kids total. And she has this massive home that she was convinced was going to be filled with all of her cute Mormon grandchildren. And it's her gay son and his boyfriend living in my grandparents' old space. And my boyfriend lives with us, and everybody loves Joe. And my parents are obsessed, and they choose to show up, and we stay in the room. The thing about building a home is don't leave. Don't, don't run away. Stay in the space. As uncomfortable as the conversations are, stay in the room. 
And that's what my my parents have chosen to do. You know who I think the the heroes in this story in a lot of ways are your parents. Oh yeah, for sure. Who who have built this home. Maybe your grandfather built it, but what they've created at this point mm-hmm. is a is a home where they're saying, You're always welcome yeah. back here. We're gonna leave judgment and yeah. we're gonna evolve together. Do you feel that? I do feel that. And I it's also really cool because as beautiful as the home is, what's home is where mom and dad are. It can be a little tiny shanty, tw- like little shack somewhere, or it can be this gorgeous palace. And what's great is wherever they are is where everyone wants to be. And it's great to have a beautiful space, but it's not necessary. Um, it's, still, it's a lot of work. The bigger it's a lot of work. They've done so much work. I'm, I'm so proud of them. And I'm also proud that they, like, stay in the thing. They stay in the church. They, like, they, they like very much are examples of really beautiful humans that choose their families and choose God and, and like, live the things that the gospel talks about. That it can all work together. It can all work together. We don't have to be so divided. And especially, like, now in America, this level of division, oh, my gosh, it's like, can like, I would love to hear about why you're voting for what you're voting for without you su- assuming I'm going to scream and yell. There's I, just so much screaming and yelling and so much conflict. And so when you have a gay son and you're a Mormon rock star dad, everyone's fascinated by how you're going to make that work. Yeah. And 15 years and a lot of like tears and a lot of like therapy session and a lot of like continuing to show up. And life's like a house. It's like you got to keep working on it. You got to, oh gosh, there's the rug thing again. And there's the the backyard and we got to fit. You always have to tend it. And the second you choose to stop tending your garden or tending your home or tending your family, it gets out of control. And there's just a lot of people who I know, like, like my boyfriend's family is very distant and very divided and they don't know how to show up for each other and they don't know how to stay in the same room and they don't know how to like tend the thing. Because it gets overwhelming. And when you don't know how to tend the thing, get help. Get therapy. Get a gardener. Get someone to teach you how to honor the things that you have chosen to take responsibility for. Your family, your home, your community. It's crucial. What would you go back and tell, you know, 13, 14-year-old Jeff? living in Heber and mm-hmm. not able to be authentic to yourself about your journey, about what's ahead. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would absolutely tell little me, there's no way that you can screw this up. There's no way to do it right. And there's no corner of the universe where you aren't love and you aren't perfect. And being perfect, God doesn't need you to figure out how to vacuum the whole house before you can let anybody come into your house. God doesn't need you to be perfect in order to be around you. That a whole me is love and is worthy. And that's good and bad and pretty and cute and fun and awkward and quirky and strange and and adorable and fun and awkward and angry. And that it's all beautiful. 
And finally, what does the word home mean to you now? Um, everything I need and everything I want, I already have. And home is inside me. And it's funny when you said it like it. Like it hit this like part like right here in my under my rib cage. You said, "Where's what's home?" And I like felt it like burn like right in my sternum. And I've and I always thought it was somewhere else, and I never knew that the earth was there to cradle and support me. And I do this like yoga practice with this woman who like talks about how let the earth hold you. And I'm like, ah, oh, I cry every time. Um, homes in my homes me. And home's already here with me. And home is safe. And I create inside myself a safe space. And as I do that, everything else um, stems from there. Jeff McLean, I just love you. Oh, I love you too. Oh my gosh. Where can people find you and follow your journey? Oh, well, um, I'm McLean Vocal Works on Instagram. And um, I teach voice here and I teach voice on Zoom. And I teach people how to connect to their voices and their authenticity. And I don't really teach people how to sing. I teach people how to like overcome all the reasons why they don't think they can. And then, yeah, my Farmer Jeff account, it's been a lot of work. It could stem from this like heart space and now it's like a thing. Um, but there's Farmer Jeff McLean on Instagram too. Yes. And then I have a book coming out with my oh dad my that's going to be great about the whole journey in greater depth, honoring it a little bit more. And um yeah. Please keep us posted on everything happening with you. Of course, I, you will keep me posted oh and then I will keep everyone else posted because I just love you dearly. I love you too. Thanks for letting me be here. This has been such an honor. Oh my gosh. I hope thank it was you okay. You're the I best. I so nervous. You're like, oh, what am I saying? No, everybody needs more Jeff McLean in their lives. Oh, thank so you, thank you. I love you. Thank you. I'm Jennifer Stagg, and you've been listening to The Heart of the Home. I hope you'll subscribe, review, and rate this podcast, and tune in next episode for more Heart of the Home. Thank you so much for listening.